Well, I knew I was in for a treat today when I got out of my car. There was Bob pulling out that big fiddle. <laughs> Tried to tell me it was his Bible, but I knew that wasn't true. That's because Bob doesn't carry a Bible. You know why? All in here with him. How'd I do, Bob? That's great. Okay, buddy. Turn back to Proverbs chapter 23. You know, we kind of, I didn't plan it this way, but we kind of developed a little series here out of Proverbs chapter 23 about just really what it means to have the right kind of relationship with God that, that really is a true relationship. We have defined a lot of things in the last two or three weeks. You know, a, a building a proper relationship and a walk with Christ based on the Word of God, based on truth. We have defined a lot of key elements, and we'll continue to use those today and probably define some more. But I want to I wanna, I wanna take you today and talk about, in your relationship with God, what is the final analysis? What is the bottom line? When I deal with the Bible or subjects in the Bible, I always have a rule that I follow, and that is that I always break the principle, the concept, the verse down to its lowest common denominator. That means you can't get any more out of it. You know, a lot of times, a lot of preachers, a lot of people, they'll give you a verse, but they won't work it all the way to the end of the meaning of the verse and lay it out. And that's okay, I get that. But for me, I want the bottom line in everything. And if I know what the bottom line is, I can pretty much deal with, with uh, whatever situation is. And I want to talk today about the bottom line in your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We are a young church, young in the sense that we have uh, so many young couples and so many young singles that will become young couples any moment now. And, you know, and it, it's a great thing. And last week we saw the detailed picture uh, of the time period of Christianity that, that we live in. And we know now that we are living in the Laodicean church period. That church period runs approximately in time, in history, from around 1600 up to about 1900. And, you know, and then it changes then, uh, 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 excuse me, later church period starts at around 1900 and moves up into the time that we live in. The Philadelphian is, is in the 1600s. And we know now that putting in practical terms, we know that it's a church period that is a spoiled brat. They, they, they think that everybody owes them something. It's defined for you in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. And it was the church that came into power, uh, into being, in, 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 its, in its philosophy around 1900. And it continued up to the time that we're living today. And it's the last period, if you look at our chart over there, it's the last period before the rapture of the church. It's a church that's a very weak church. It's a church that uh, is very uh, much of a whining church about everything that they don't have. And, you know, and yet they won't lift a finger. They won't do anything to change the spiritual temperature of where they're at. The Bible says Laodicea means rights of the people or justice of the people. And it's a church of entitlement. It's a church like many, many Christians who believes that Christianity owes them something. The churches owe them something. That, you know, that they just go to church and God, you know, is going to just give them and make them into a strong Christian. They think that everybody owes them something. You know, and that is spread right into 
the family unit today in Christianity and has basically destroyed it. And we've all seen parents with kids uh, that are just like that. And you know, it's, it doesn't matter how the parents, and I, I've dealt with this all of my ministry, and it's no matter how that the parents, you know, uh, they want to live in denial or they want to blame their failed parenting on everybody or everything else in life, you know. Uh, it's the parents who, in the bottom analysis, produce that kind of child. And it's no matter whether it's a church or whether it's a family, whether it's a, a mom and a dad or a pastor, uh, you know, you, you have to take responsibility for the, the, the failures and the mindset that we produce not only in our churches today, but in our families. The mindset of no accountability or no responsibility. It's always somebody else's fault. Somebody did this, and this is the way that I am. I'm an alcoholic because alcoholic is, alcoholism is not a sin. It's a sickness now, and I have that sickness. It was in my family's genes, so therefore I'm going to grow up to be an alcoholic. Or drugs. Everything we do today in this world is try to pass the blame and accountability and responsibility to somebody else. And the problem is that you have to operate by truth. You have to operate by reality. And we have no structure today in families. We have no structure today in churches. I'm a firm believer, and I have a number of things that I follow in the idea of being a leader. And I, 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 I rise and fall on one of the greatest principles that I follow myself, and I hold everybody accountable to it, that wants to be a leader. And that is simply this. Everything rises and falls on your leadership. The fact that a pastor or a parent will blame somebody else for their failed parenting or pastoring. And you'll remember that I laid out the book of Colossians. And I gave you a little subtitle for Colossians, Insight into Our Insanity. How that Colossians actually shows us the mindset behind the Laodicean church period. Laodicea is found five times. Thursday night I showed you in Bible study, somebody asked the question, how did the seven churches that Paul wrote to line up to the seven churches that John writes to? And I I showed you um, Colossians. And I showed you that the three short chapters all focus on issues that we have. Chapter 1. He talks about who Christ is again, because the church today has no idea who the real Christ of the Bible is. In chapter 2, he tells us what the issues that we're up against today. What has replaced in Christianity the pure Word of God? And I gave you those. And then in chapter 3 and 4, I gave you our response to it. How we today should fight that by, in our church, in your family, in your life, Stay true to the Word of God. You know, in church history, and church history is, is an incredible thing that everybody needs to go through. In our Bible Institute, not this year, uh, not next year, but then the last year, we'll probably, not probably, we will go through church history. And I'll, I'll lay it out for you as best I can. But in church history, which the foundation is found in Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3, you will find that the seven periods of church history, And there are seven actual periods of time in history that the church goes through. In the Bible, you can see it on the chart over there, right after the cross. The Bible lists those time periods. 
And that's the way you study church history. The church first one was Ephesus. The second one was Smyrna. The third one was Pergamos. The fourth one was Thyatira. The fifth one was Sardis. The sixth one was Philadelphia. And the last one, ours, is Laodicea. And I showed you how that each of them represent a period in church history. Ephesus, about Acts chapter 20, around 66 A.D., up to around 180. Smyrna picks up around that 180 time period and goes up to 325 A.D. or thereabout. Pergamos picks up around 325 and goes up to the beginning of the Dark Ages in 500 A.D. Thyatira picks up in the, at the middle of the Dark Ages and goes all the way up to around 1,000. Uh, and then, of course, Sardis from 1,000 to 1,500 at the beginning of the Reformations. Philadelphia, 1600 to 1900, with the production of the King James Bible, we've talked about the greatest period of time in church history. Then Laodicea, us, where you and I are at today. All of this. And yet, most people see that and understand that. But the big issue today is doctrine. What the Bible teaches. And most Christians are not very good students of their own church history. And they have failed to see that in each one of those periods of church history. The church, the true church, just like you and me, the body of Christ, the church was faced with a doctrinal issue that they had to deal with. Something came up in a major way, in a doctrinal way, that challenged the very beliefs that they had. And every period of church history had to face that issue, settle that issue, and then move on. And the Ephesus went back there in the early part. You know what it was? It was the resurrection. Christ wasn't out of that tomb 20 minutes Then everybody around him was saying he really didn't come out. They, they said that he was, his body was stolen by some of his disciples. Uh, uh, one of the theories that you find the liberal, liberal, liberals believe today that, that Jesus just passed out on the cross. And when they put him in that tomb, you know how a cave is. It's kind of cool and damp. And he laid on that cool stone and it revived him. And then he just got up and went on his way. The first doctrinal issue that they had to deal with was did he really come out of that tomb? And you know that's the fundamental base, baseline of all Christianity? Because I got some news for you. If he didn't come out of that tomb today, we are all dead in our sins and we're on our way to that lake of fire. The second one in Smyrna, around 200 A.D. to 325, which now was the virgin birth, was Christ really the Son of God? You have the great controversy between Athanasia and Arianism. And in fact, the Council of Nicaea in 325 was called to, to settle the issue of the deity of Christ. Now, there were no real Christians involved in that because the real Christians already knew that he was God. But that was the issue that they were challenged with. In the Pergamus church period, around 325 up to 500, the issue that they were faced with was baptism regeneration. The rise of the Roman Catholic Church under Constantine and, and all of those things, and he brings salvation into the church as he begins to be start of the Roman Catholic Church. And the great issue that real Christians had to battle and fight was if you getting baptized will wash away your sins. The fourth one was Thyatira. 
And Thyatira, now they have to deal with the new doctrine of amillennialism and postmillennialism. Augustine had written his works. He was a great Roman Catholic theologian, held up today even by many, many Christians as a great, uh, great uh, theologian. And I suspect he probably is the best theologian in the lake of fire this morning. He believed in baptism regeneration. He's the one that denied the visible return of the Lord Jesus Christ called premillennialism and come up with the idea of what we have today in amillennialism and postmillennialism. The church had to be faced with that. In the, in the fifth period, the shortest period, right up to the Reformation, the issue was predestination. Did God really pick some people to go to heaven and some people to go to hell? Is it really true that Jesus loves me, sorry about you? Is that really the doctrine there? And of course, the church had to fight that and stand up for the truth in that. The Philadelphian church age, around 1500 to 1900, the issue was eternal security. The fact that you are now saved... The fact that you are born again, are you eternally really sealed under the day of redemption, or can you lose your salvation? Every period in church history. Now, we take those doctrines for granted today, don't we? I mean, those are the Baptist distinctives we talk about. And we just take those for granted that they've always been around, here they are, we believe it. The truth of the matter is, the very church that you and I are part of, the Bible believers down through history, Every period of church history was faced with one of the great doctrines that you and I take for granted today, and then the face of the opposition had to take their stand. Now, I brought you up to Philadelphia. You know what the doctrinal issue is with Laodicea? Did God really know what he was doing when he wrote a Bible? Do you have the Word of God? Do you have the absolute perfect Word of God in your hand this morning that you can get the exact words of God. That's our issue. I get criticized all the time. Well, you make too much of that. No, you're wrong. You don't make enough issue about it. Because that's the issue of our day. Now, you may be a wimp and a whiner someplace and go out and say, well, you know what, not me. I will stand with my forefathers on their doctrines. This one is mine. Excuse me if I get a little passion. I forgot my meds this morning. <laughs> and you will find a great contrast between the last two churches. <clears throat> it's a sermon unto itself. <clears throat> because the, Laodicea, the, the, the uh, Philadelphian church, Philadelphia means brotherly love. The Philadelphian church from 1600 to 1900 this is where the Bible goes around the world four or five times. You want to talk about great missionaries? That's the time period. You want to talk about great preachers? That's the time period. You want to talk about a time when three quarters of the world through England and the United States had come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? That's the time period. And in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, he tells them, I have set before you an open door. And the reason why, in the verse, the reason why he set before them an open door is they kept his word. Contrast that to our church, Laodicea, which comes on the scene around 1900 or so. When you get into Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, you find that that is the church of the closed door. He says in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20 about our church. 
who has failed to hold up the doctrine that we were challenged with. He said, I behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and sup with him and he with me. Jesus Christ today, based on the Word of God. Hey, don't take the ravings of a mad old man. Based on the Word of God. The Bible says that today in the Laodicean church, Jesus Christ is put out of his own church, knocking on the door, wanting to get back in. Now today, we will move on and we will look at that the end result of a real relationship with God. We're going to get to the lowest common denominator today based on truth. Having the right relationship with Christ and fundamentally at the end of the day. And I know there's a lot of blessings and a lot of key things that come along with the relationship with God. I'm going to scrape them all off and take it right down based on the verse of what you got. It says in Proverbs chapter 23, verses 24 and 25, The father of the righteous shall greatly rejoice. And he that begotteth a wise child shall have joy of him. Thy father and thy mother shall be glad, and she that bear thee shall, shall rejoice. Let's go to the Word of God today and ask God's blessing upon it. John Gowland, would you stand up and ask the blessing on the message today for me, sir? Now, as I said, we have been talking about our walk with the Lord in the last couple of weeks. And today I want to talk about the real joy of that walk. The real rejoicing in that walk. Now, I know, I know. There's a lot of things that we get uh, excited about and, and have joy in. And I, I get it. I understand. I'm not taking away from any of that. I'm bringing it down to the final analysis. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, somebody asked a question Thursday night about the, uh, something I had said in Philippians, and I walked you through those ten verses, and the first one I gave you is Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that he hath begun a good work in you and performed another day of Jesus Christ. And I ask you today, what does that mean? What is that good work? Somebody said, well, uh, that means that uh, he began a good work in me, and I'm good. And I'm going to, uh, he's going to perform that work until uh, to the rapture of the church and I'll be around when the rapture comes. Okay, let me ask you a question. How does that verse work for somebody who lived in 1500? How does that verse work for somebody who lived in 1800? I mean, the verse says that he began a good work in you and he's going to perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. If you die 300 years before the day of Jesus Christ, how does that verse work? I'm going to give you the answer to that today. You're going to learn something today. You probably won't like me at the end of the sermon, but you're going to learn something today. It's all right. I got all the friends I can afford at this time of my life anyhow. Now, I want you to notice, first of all, the context. It's a reference to a father and a mother rejoicing over their child that God gave them. Let's read those two verses again, and then we're going to begin to work through it. The father of the righteous shall greatly rejoice, and he that begotteth a wise child shall have joy in him. Verse 25 says, Thy father and thy mother shall be glad, and she that bear thee shall rejoice. 
Now, doctrinally, let's kind of get those out of the way first. This will be, obviously, the nation of Israel. We know that the book of Proverbs is written for, for, foremost to the nation of Israel, God's son, Exodus chapter 4, as a nation. <clears throat> and the whole book is built around God trying to get that nation, his son, to be wise and make the right choices. And we know how that works. The mother there in that story will be the city of Jerusalem. Historically, this will be Solomon's own son, Rehoboam, uh, who forsook the wisdom of his father and played the fool. And the mother here would be Bathsheba. But I want to focus on the inspirational application. Because there will be three key applications to this verse. And there will be times in the Bible where you will find dual applications. This will be one of them. And as we look at it, as far as a father and a mother, we're going to talk about it in relationship to our own children first. That's going to be number one. Then i got a couple of other ones we're going to look at. This is for a Christian uh, dad and a Christian mom. And we want to look at it to that day. And I want to tell you something. Nothing will make uh, a parent's happier or prouder uh, than their children growing up side by side with them in the ministry. There's nothing greater than that. You know, God's plan to reach the world, whether you know it or not, was families. God never intended it to be great evangelists or great preachers. You'll find it's the greatest evangelist that ever lived with the Apostle Paul. And you know what he did? He started churches, and those churches began to produce families. Because God's plan for reaching the world is families. My family and your family. And every family who claims to be saved. That's God's plan. And you know, within that family, God intended that family to have an unbroken line of truth through that family. That it starts with mom and dad. And then it goes through the daughters and the sons. And then goes through the grandchildren. And it just, great, it just moves on down the line. Now, Obviously, that being true, you can now see how you have to be very careful with who you yoke yourself up to. Because the wrong husband or the wrong wife can destroy that whole concept. And you may have a relationship with God. And you may be saved. But the end final analysis is, how far is that chain going to go before it's broken? That's the key. And you know, I want to tell you, over the years... I have seen a lot of failed parenting. I, I, you know, I, I've seen every mistake a mom and dad could make. And I must confess to you today, I am no perfect father, and I have made my own many mistakes. And I never want to stand up here and say, look at me as the model of being a father. That's, you know, that's, that's not true. I have seen every mistake and a dad and a mom have made, and I have made my share. In the back of my Bible, I have listed five steps to failed parenting. And I, 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 I take them to me. I've never even taught those to you. Because they're, they're me. But I watch this thing. And all the years of dealing with hundreds. No. Thousands of people. And I've choreographed it all. And watched it. And came down and said to myself. These are the five major steps. Of failed parenting. And I've watched it unfold. You know, it's like a, I always likened it, watching it. You people who work with people with me, see if this isn't true. It's like a slow-moving cancer. The, the, it stays dormant in your kids in those four, five, six, seven, eight years. It's hard to detect. 
It's hard to tell if it's just being kid stuff or it's just tough. But as the kids get older, you can clearly see that there's something wrong. And of course, there were warning signs. But you ignored the principles. Now at 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, when the child should be standing by your side and doing the ministry, they're not. And yet the parents, well, have I seen this? The parents always want to play the game. Oh, everything is fine. Oh, we're always, it's wonderful. Everything is good. They will project a phony Christianity that actually has produced a phony child. And now, hey, I want, you're not, you're, you're listening to somebody that's been in the ministry almost half a century. I've seen all kinds of issues. Troy McKinney, how old are you, Troy? 56? You were 12 when I first met you. Steve Brackeen, well, I don't know where he's at. He's probably shooting somebody in a parking lot. But he was 14. I mean, that's how long I've been in this thing. <clears throat> and I was in it before I met those guys. So I'm a, <clears throat> there's a lot of things I don't know anything about. I mean, my car breaks down, I'm ready to sell it. Kenny told me one time it's got a short circuit. My question was, how much does it cost to make that longer? <laughs> I'm the guy when I was living by myself, but my mom remarried and moved out. I had to call the Maytag guy because they don't do anything anyhow because the wash machine wouldn't work. I went down and put the clothes in, put the soap in, and pushed the button. wouldn't start. I had to pay $40 to be taught and trained that you had to close the lid before you pushed the button. I locked my car keys in my car one day. I had to call the Jimmy fix-it guy, get it for your car, and rip you off in the process. <laughs> he was at my house, had one of those long things, put it down the window, in 10 seconds, it cost me $40. Two weeks later, yeah. All the Dumbos in life are not elephants, I want to tell you that. I, I, I did it again. I called him. Same guy came out. <laughs> yes, I am a little embarrassed at this point in time. I'm a grown man. I used to guard facilities, and, 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 and here I am, two times. And he's a professional. <clears throat> Opened it up. I said, how much? He says, $30. I said, <clears throat> it was 40 last time. He said, yeah, we give a discount for being stupid. <laughs> I needed that. <coughs> he said he shouldn't have said that to you. Well, maybe, but I never locked my keys in my car again. Amen. Every time I get out of my thing, I say, okay, stupid, where are they? <laughs> and now the blame game begins. Now it starts to be everybody else's problem for my child. They start making excuses for their child, but you watch this. In reality, they're making excuses for themselves. 
Well, my kids went through some really bad situations in life. You mean worse than Job? Well, they went to a church and the church really did them wrong. Really? You ever go to a restaurant and get a bad meal? Did you quit eating out? Well, there were people in the church that, that, that really uh, didn't do them right and, and treated them bad, and now they, well, they, won't, oh, they won't go back to church again. When you get a job and the boss or your work, co-workers don't treat you right, are you going to quit and never go to work again? I mean, we blame everything on everybody else instead of taking the responsibility ourselves. And, and they, they have to shift the spotlight and place the blame on somebody else because they just can't ever handle responsibility that I messed up and screwed up and my kid is in the mess they're in because I didn't do what's right. And you know what? That is so ridiculously stupid. There's something always you can do to fix it. You know what gets me about politicians? Whenever they get in a jam, they always try to lie their way out of it. I just wish one time a politician would get up and say for the people, I screwed up, I messed up, I own this, I take responsibility for it, I ask you to forgive me, I'm human like everybody else, that's no excuse, I am sorry. Why does it have to be a thousand excuses and you wind up getting caught in the end anyhow? Listen. I have seen in my own church, in my ministry for years and years and years, parents who have lost their kids. And yet I want to tell you, I have the utmost respect for them. They saw their failure. They accepted their responsibility in it. They came to me. And we put together a plan together to try to get that situation where it needed to be. We worked Together. You know, in the Bible, there's a concept of blamelessness. Most people don't understand the Bible definition of blamelessness. The Bible definition of blamelessness is not that you go through life never doing anything wrong to be blamed. The concept of blamelessness, when you do do something wrong, you take ownership of it, make it right, and then you move on with life and you're blameless. I've watched over my life and you know, and you and I know, we have met up in my office how many times helping you with your kids. And boy, when we meet parents, you know, do I put good plans together for your children? Amen. You betcha I do. But it all starts not with my plan. It all starts with mom and dad being honest. And I've watched so many of you do what is right. And I, I respect you incredibly this morning. I've watched some of you moms and some of you dads turn that thing around. And all I can say for you is you are a hero to me. And maybe your kids don't see it yet. But someday you'll be a hero to them. Amen. And then there will be those who I absolutely have no respect for. Do you love them? Oh, Absolutely. Do you pray for them every day? And I would help them in a New York second. What is a New York second? 
I hear that all the time. It sounds neat. Is it a second faster in New York than it is here? It is? Why? You seem to be authority on it. Enlighten me, Caleb. Caleb's a good Bible name. Caleb. Joshua needs some help here. Now what is it? Time zone. Okay. Yeah, that's good. Hey, I, I, you know what I love about you? You're so much like me. When I get in the jam and I don't know what to do, I lie too. That's the art of the ministry, faking your way through anything. And you know, it's tough for a parent to come to grips with the fact that it's not your child that's the issue. It's you. It's you. You know, and it's many times it's an arrogancy of pride. Many times they're just afraid. Many times they just don't have the courage to turn around and deal with their child. And after a while, the child takes control and you're working for them. You ever see a little kid at a store with a mom when he's eight or four or five years old and he doesn't get the toy that he wants? The temper tantrum he throws? And I've seen parents, honestly, I, 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 if, I hear, if I'm at Walmart, and that, Walmart is a great hunting ground for, for, for kids that want to throw tantrums. I love Walmart. Not only to get a best deal, but I listen down the aisles. I try to talk to the manager and have him, you know how they put, you know, there's a sale going on in line, in Blue Light Special in line five. I want him to say, there's a real fight going on with a kid and his mother in line six. I'd be down there. I learn from those things. I'll just stand over there. And then I'll, you know, at some point, if I see, I, I'll, I'll get the gate spirit. You know, Ollie Gates, the barbecue place, the gate spirit. May I help you? You know, that. I remember one time, it was a mall that had poles like this. It, was in a, it wasn't completely covered. It was open in the middle. And there were poles holding the sides up. And this woman, and I was, this woman walking down the thing. And her kid was just throwing a fit. Evidently, he wanted something didn't get it. And so every pole, the kid would wrap around there and scream and yell. And she would be coming on him, you know. Come on. She'd break him through. He'd come around. He'd get to the next pole and hang on. And he said, come on, come on, come on. And he'd get to the next pole all the way down there. I, was, I just followed. <laughs> And I thought to myself, you know, that's how God gets a lot of Christians home to heaven. One pole whining at a time. Now, I could have helped that woman out in 30 seconds. Fixed that kid for life. But you know why you never could? Because the problem wasn't the kid. Problem is a parent that'll let him hang on to the poles. Maybe she had something with poles. I don't know. I'm not going to get into that. <laughs> but it's not the. Ch- That's the issue. You'll never reach out for help. 
You'll never get honest. And I'll tell you why you won't, at least come to me. Because in, in the world of Christianity, and you people who work with people, you know, people today want to treat their symptoms. But they don't really want to solve the problems. I don't treat symptoms. I solve problems. The bulk of Christianity today just want to treat the symptoms so they can feel better. You know what happens. We all do it. I do it. I know you do it. You all do it. Especially all you older guys, you all do it because men are men. You go to the doctor. You don't feel good. He gives you a prescription. You just take the medicine. See, Bubba's shaking his head right there. I know. You just take the medicine until you start to feel better, don't you, Bubba? That's why you look so sickly this morning. And that's what we do. We just want to get enough so we can feel better, but we never want to take all the medicine to really solve the problem. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, that idea of solving problems versus symptoms is a very real principle. And the verse says, the father of the righteous shall greatly rejoice. And he that begotteth a wise child shall have joy of him. And I want to tell you, Nothing on this planet will take the place of a righteous child standing shoulder to shoulder with mom and dad in the ministry. It's the final analysis of what your walk with God should produce. And now parents, parents can be proud of a lot of things with their kids, and rightly so. They should be. You get a kid that excels in sports, man, be proud of that. I'm telling you, man, they can hit the ball or run or play soccer or play basketball. Hey, I'm all for it, man. I'll I tell you what, I think those things are great. And I think they build a lot of things. Your school academics, getting on the honor roll. I would be proud of any kid that made the honor roll. It was always my envy in life to be on the honor roll. I think it's great. I look at some of you kids that you do, do everything, and you just have a straight-A average. Now, you know you're cheating. <laughs> College scholarships. I mean, hey, you do good in school and, and do good in sports or academics or golf or tennis or whatever it is. And you get a scholarship for it? I got, a, I, got, I, my, I got a scholarship. I was in high school. My best sport was the hand grenade throw. And I got a scholarship to the U.S. Army. <laughs> and all the hand grenades I could eat. I think it's great. Military service? Oh, boy. Get a great job? Oh, man. You deserve it. But listen to me. That's all good. Listen to me. As good as all those things are, they will fail in comparison to your child loving and serving God in your church by your side. I mean, uh, we started, when we went through the child thing a while back, we started you going through it with your family. I still have you come to me and say, man, that was the greatest thing. We're still doing it. Mom and dad and the family sitting down and one day a week going through that Bible together. Seeing you out there ministering side by side on the street like this afternoon. Mom and dad will be up here at restart and the kids will be on Will's team down there. 
I mean, it's incredible. It just really is. Or how about this? Watching your child begin to disciple their first person. Listen to them give their first testimony. Listen to them give their first devotion. You know, I, I never say much about this. I really don't. For a couple of reasons, but it's none of your business. But I thank God every day and rejoice above measure that my kids are by my side in the ministry and all that I do. And, and I'm far from the perfect father, I'm telling you. I got what I got for two reasons. One of them, I'll tell you, is just the blessings of the book. And I'll tell you, my, my daughters, Kelly and Jamie, they can be handfuls. I'm waiting for an amen from both of you. <laughs> they can be something. And I thank God every day for the sons I got. Notice I didn't say son-in-laws. They're my sons. Now, that doesn't mean there's incest in our family. That means that they are my own, they're like my own sons. I, 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 I couldn't do what I do without them. Uh, I, I just couldn't. And I don't ever say anything about it. I don't get up here and brag on them because I, I don't want to put them in a bad light. But this is, this is, remember Thursday night I told you about the book of Philippians, how it was a more intimate book because of it. Well, this is my more intimate sermon. So I'll tell you some things. I love Danny and Woody. I wouldn't trade everything in the world. You know what I've learned? I've learned that that book will carry you through when you fail. And yet I thank God every day that they're in ministry with me. But I want to tell you something else too. I couldn't do what I do without them. But I want to tell you right now, I'm not taking any false credit. 100% of what they are goes to my wife. Amen. Not me. I'll just tell you. And I'll give you guys some advice if I might. I know you're not asking for it. If you're really honest with yourself this morning and you've got good, solid kids, it's because of your wife, not because of you. And the quicker you learn that great truth, the better off you're going to be in life. Well, I'm the spiritual leader of my family. Yeah, and when you fail, it'll be the wife who picks up and carries it through for you. You idiot. Hey, a mother will be in the early years, she will make those kids or she will break those kids. She will train them to stand for God or she will enable them to be worthless. Uh, you know, and, and, and the world is so clear on that. I mean, they interview some hotshot quarterback and the first thing he says is, hi mom. He didn't say anything to his dad. Hi, Mom. Hi, Mom. I mean, it's just, it's just that case. You know, there are more men and women in the ministry today and on the mission field today and serving God today because of praying mothers and grandmothers and all the fathers on the planet. 
on the battlefield of Normandy or the battlefield of the Battle of the Bulge or at, at, at Quezon or wherever it was when a young Marine or a young Army guy got, got hit bad and he's laying there on the beach or laying there in the jungle with his intestines hanging out and he's going to die and he's screaming for help. It's, Mother! 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 Never dad. Never dad. And the quicker you guys learn that, the better off you're going to be. Verse 24 says, Thy father and thy mother shall be glad, and she that bear him, they shall rejoice. You know, over the years I've had, you know, and you get this in the ministry, I've had parents over the years rag on me because they didn't think that I took care of their kid the way I should have. Kid didn't work out, you know, didn't happen, so they blame me for it. And I'll be honest with you, I'm just going to lay my cards on the table. You know what? I can only work with what you give me. And when you have spent all your life enabling that kid and making that kid uh, into something and giving them everything and never, never holding them accountable, and then they get to be 17, 18, 19, and 20, and your world's falling apart, and you want to bring them to me, the magic man with a potion that's going to fix it all, you're out of your mind. I can't undo. Hey, in the last year, I've seen situations, and I'm not going to bring them up. I've seen situations where we had gals and guys come into this church whose parents were absolutely worthless. They were the most despicable parents on the planet, as far as I am concerned. And I've watched this church love those kids, bring those kids in. I've watched you ladies work with them. I've watched you guys work with them. I've watched you disciple them. I've watched you do everything with them that you did. And you know what? At the end of the day, you got the sharp stick in the eye, and they're with the despicable parents today. Now, you know why that is? Because the very best we have, the very best that we can do, cannot overcome the influence of a parent in their life, whether it be good or whether it be bad. You better learn that. I can only work with what you bring me. You bring me something that's absolutely busted and broke, and you expect me to put a Cadillac together for you. The spiritual temperature of your walk with God, listen to me, will be your children. And there's a way to fix it. There always is. There's never a time that there's not something that you can do to do right. The problem is you won't do it. Now the second point of my message. And I want this one to be an encouragement to you. It will be the joy that you have in watching the spiritual children that God gives you. People you disciple, the people you counsel, the people that you work with. You know, in a family, there's no greater joy than giving birth. We ought to know that around here. Giving birth to a new baby and then everybody watching that baby grow up. I mean, it gets to be six or seven years old and takes its first baby steps. But it probably does it before that. I, I, <laughs> but you know what I mean. It, you get to about three or four, and it starts to take us, you know, it's wobbling. And you're saying, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, run. Oh, call grandma, call the uncles, call everybody, call Trump, call everybody. <laughs> <laughs> 
They walk. They walk. They walk. He walked. She walked. They walk. Pray. Wow. Wow. It's the greatest day. Get pictures. Get video. And when you go over for dinner, you got to watch those stupid videos. I have watched more three-year-olds falling down, going to steps, and then they say, isn't that great? Isn't that great? Isn't that great? Can we eat now? Is there any food in this thing? And then, how about the first little words? He said, Daddy. No, he didn't. He said, you're ugly. No, I heard him. He said, Daddy. No, he said, he, 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 said, he, he regurgitated. No, he, he said, Daddy. You want those first words, and you're so proud. Why? Because they're beginning to come out of that baby stage where now you can have some relationship with them. Oh, and they're so precious to you. And as God's family, there's absolutely no greater joy than giving birth to a new Christian within the church and then helping them and watch them grow as you give them the Word of God. 1 Peter 2.2 2 says, As newborn babes desire to sincere milk of the word, word that they may grow thereby. Hey, the lifeblood of this church, the lifeblood of this church will be the men and the women who take the spiritual babies in this church that just get saved and help them grow. I, I'll tell you, I, I, this, you, you amaze me. I wouldn't trade you for anybody on the planet. One of the things, because we're so young, this, all the young couples, and you keep me young. I'm going to be 68 here in a, in a while. And I, 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 I see guys out there. I saw a guy the other day, and I was with somebody. I forget who it was. And, we, and, and this guy was gray, scraggly beard. And I, he had a, I introduced myself and talked to him, and, I, and we were talking. And I said, how old are you? And he says, I'm, I'm 64. Well, I'm 67. And I said to my buddy, I said, honestly, do I look like that? <laughs> I don't think like a 67-year-old guy. In my brain, I'm still 20. I love being with you guys. I love playing with you guys. I love hanging out with you guys. I love, you know, I mean, some of the stuff you guys do are stupid. I get that. But, uh, but, but I, I enjoy it. You keep me young. I mean, most churches with a guy my age, it's a dinosaur boneyard. Everybody's 80 or older. I mean, you're going to turn into a funeral home just by natural process. You guys are alive. You make me alive. But more important, you take every young Christian that comes into this thing and you keep them alive. That's got to be rejoicing to you. It's got to be a blessing to you. It's incredible. Incredible. After your own family, your kids, and growing them up in the Lord to stand with you, there'll be no greater joy or rejoicing through the people of God to take those young Christians and invest yourself into them. And you know why that is? Because the bottom analysis, the final, the final bottom line of a walk in a relationship with God, the natural act of ministry and the natural occurrence of a walk with God is simply reproducing yourself in somebody else. Giving them, like last week, freely what you paid the price to get. Philippians 1, 6, he began a good work in you. That good work in the final analysis 
is you taking somebody else and bringing them along. Ever notice or take notice how that all the folks, no matter where it is, I'm sure, but all the folks who complain about what we do, you ever notice how none of them ever invest in anybody? You got to mark that. They don't like what you do. They don't like what I do. They're always complaining about this and that, but in truth or reality, they never invest all of their life in it. I've heard some of those people disciple, and you know what? It's just like they read it off the page. And I honestly think they lash out at you and me because they see what you're doing, and it convicts them. So they got to maintain some kind of spirituality so they find something to blame on you. And they're always looking for another church where they can go and do nothing. Listen, I've watched some of you throughout your years invest in so many people that the stability of this church, some of the core people in this church are people that you took under your wing over the years, built into them. And that's what makes this church so strong today. I think it wasn't this last Thursday night, it was the Thursday night before. Somebody asked a question out of Luke chapter 17, verse 9, uh, about at the judgment seat of Christ. That verse says that you only get rewards for the things that you do over and above, that you don't get any reward for the things you're supposed to do. They asked that question about 825, and I didn't have time to get into it. But as a child of God, there's only two areas you can go over and above in. Obviously, one of them is you're giving financially to God, tithes, offerings, and, and sacrificial giving, going above what's required of you. And I'll tell you where the other one is. It's the people you invest your life with. I've seen some of you go over and above and beyond. I've seen when they didn't have a wide margin Bible, you bought them one. You didn't have to do that. You could have just said, well, yeah, yeah, when you get money saved up, you know, you can buy one. No, 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 no. You went over and above and did that. I've watched you go over and above and doing things that they do, things that they that they, that they get into. I've watched, I've watched a guy like Zach, who's our youth pastor. He'll show up at the kids' games and this and that. He doesn't get paid for being a youth pastor. He goes over and above what he does. You have a problem with your child, he'll spend all his afternoon with them, talking them through. He'll teach them the Bible. He'll get them whatever they need. And you know what? You can't teach somebody how to do that. I don't have a class on going over and above. Going over and above in your life comes from your relationship with God that you see and understand how He went over and above for you so you're willing to do it for Him. You simply amaze me. Your whole life is God first, others second, and me last. And as a spiritual father, you as a spiritual mother, some of you ladies or a big sister, you get the blessing like no other in walking, watching that spiritual baby grow up and rejoicing with them. Hey, I've watched some of you year after year after year through softball and volleyball. There were people that were coming to play volleyball that we could never get to come to church. At four years, three years, five years, six years, they'd always show up to play volleyball and they'd show up to play softball. And you stayed with them. You never wrote them off. As long as they were coming, as long as they were making an effort, you invested in them. I watched you. I watched you take them over to Jason's Deli and buy their dinner just so they would come over and get to meet people. 
You stayed faithful to those people because they had to have time to come around. I, I, think, of, I think of Darren and Kim. I couldn't do what I do without Darren and Kim. Darren can fix anything on this planet. And, and, and Kim, is, they got the greatest heart. But you know what? How, you know how many years you came to play ball with whatever came to church? A long time. Somebody stayed faithful with you. And now look what you do for me. You amaze me, guys. You just amaze me. You've learned to look at the good in somebody, not always see the negative. But at the same time, you have learned that there are some people you just can't help. There are some people that you just need to walk away from. And that doesn't mean you don't want to. It just means that you've got to work with what they give you. And you've got some people who just do not want to do what they've got to do. And you watch those little babies that God gave you growing up. Oh, I watch you. I watch you. I watch the pride and the, how proud you are when you disciple somebody. And on your team, you say to them, why don't you give why don't you just give your devotion or just give your testimony for a devotion next week? And they say, well, oh boy, I've never done that before. It'll be okay. Just, you don't have to worry about doing a devotion. Just, just give your testimony. Tell them what God did. And they're scared. Sure they are. But once they start doing it, try to shut them up. I've watched some of you guys that are really good at what you do. The first time you ever opened your mouth for the Lord was down at the mission where you gave a testimony. Who couldn't give one down there? You got every drunk on the planet. They don't really care what you say. <laughs> but it was good for you. And we rejoiced. We rejoiced. We rejoiced. And you're here now, established in our church, because of you. Because of you who took your time to invest and you take and rejoice. And you know why they're doing it in you? Because they expect you to do it in somebody else. And you will. You will. I, I have to say this. I marvel at our Lincoln, Nebraska miracle. I have never seen anything like it in all of my life. And yet, we look at the people up there that we grew up and minister to and, and all that they do. And, and yet, you know, that started over 15, 16 years ago with just a little Bible study I had with, with Carolyn and Rob long before we ever, ever went up there. One day a week, we would go through something in the Bible at night. And now I look today and I look at what that has produced. Just coming down here, Caleb. Caleb, you, fix, you do anything. You do that website. I mean, I, it, 20 minutes after Bible study is over, it's on. <laughs> and you're such a good kid with everybody. You just do everything. And, and Jared and Kenzie, where are you at? Yeah, I'll tell you what. They're another product of Lincoln. They, God brought, God, we found them up there. We started going up. God 
God changed their lives and then brought them down here. Now, I have a point to all of what I'm saying, so just bear with me, because I'm going to talk about some things for a moment, and you're going to be nice and happy and praise the Lord. Then I'm going to come back, and I'm going to hit you right between the teeth. So smile while you can. There you are. Jared, you can do anything. You, 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 you amaze me. You fix anything. Uh, Donnie and Bubba said that you were the best worker they ever had, that you could fix anything. He just sends you on, a, on an Empire State Building. You could put a new top on it. And Kinsey, you're as sweet as can be. You're a great match. Somebody needs to keep him in line. And then we got little Sarah Donnelly. Well, hey, and I want to tell you something. I found out you took my oldest granddaughter up to Lincoln with you. Thank you so much for things like that. You, you can't teach that. That's somebody seeing something that needs to be done and without ever me saying, go do this, go do that. That's what Lincoln has produced. Now, hang on, I'm not done yet. And we still got him up there. J. Frank Norris is still up there. <laughs> I would hope he would move down here someday. He's not, he'd go in Texas probably. <laughs> Got old Larry, Larry Gallinger out in Washington State. You know, they're listening this morning, and you know what Larry did? They're out there with no church, him and Gail. You know what he did? He built on a little addition to his house with this big screen TV so all the people that don't have churches can come and watch us on Sunday morning. I talked to Craig Hansen this week out in Oregon. 1,500 miles away. We just sent a bunch of books out to him. You know what he's doing? He's putting that material out everywhere he goes. I got Bryce and Tiffany. I don't think they're here today, but to come up from Wichita, a little church. We went down there because they didn't have any place to go and get the Bible, and then God brought them up here. Got Lauren and Barb who've been with me and known them for years and years and years. We first met years ago preaching up in the circuit up in Iowa. Couldn't find a church. God put us back together. Here they are. Now I say this. Larry lives 1,900 miles away. Craig Hansen lives 1,500 miles away. The Lincoln people are 200 miles away. How come they can get it and you can't? How come they can be 200 miles, 1,500 miles? Oh, you know why? I'm going to tell you why. Because truth has no boundaries. Truth has no parameters. Truth doesn't know miles. It wasn't a matter of how far you were away, 1,900, 1,500, or 200. That was not the case. The case was you wanted it in your heart, and miles didn't matter. You don't learn the Bible by studying the Bible. You don't learn the Bible by reading the Bible. You learn the Bible by falling in love with the Bible. You know why some make it and some don't? 
It's like the kid who wanted to be in his town over in the Middle East. They had this great wise guy who was a guru, and he knew everybody went to him. And this kid watched out of growing up, and he wanted to be just like him. And one day he went to him and he said, I, 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 I stood in admiration of you and I, I, your wisdom and your knowledge and your understanding. And I want to come and I want to be just like you. I, I want to learn the secrets. I want to learn the great truth that you know. And the old guy said, okay. Grasshopper, okay. <laughs> come back today at 3 o'clock and I'll give you the keys to wisdom. Well, he was elated. So he goes home and he's, oh boy, boy. He's calling everybody, hey, be over there at 3 o'clock. I'm going to become a guru too, a guru also. And I'm going to, you know, I, I, this is the greatest thing. He's going to give me all his wisdom. All he spent all of his life and now he's just going to give it to me. Oh, man. I, and so he shows up at 3 o'clock. There's the old man. There's a big lake right there. The old man calls him over. And he says, so let me understand clearly little grasshopper. You want to know the secrets of learning all the great truths. Yes, sir, I do. Come with me. Took him by the hand, waded out in the water. Got into the water about up to here. Kid's thinking to myself, well, this is a little strange. You know, I've already been baptized. I, I'm not sure what's going on here. And the old man didn't say a word. He's just looking over his head. And about that time, the kid opened his mouth to say, what's going on? And the old man took his head, hands, put it on his head shoved him under the water. And the kid didn't get a good gulp of breath before he went down. And he's kicking around and screaming, and other than the old man just holding him down, and he's thrashing around, the old man just holding him down there. And after about two, three minutes, you know, and he's about ready to die, he started to, the old man pulls him up, pulls him over there, throws him on the beach, and he's coughing and spitting up water. And he looks up at this old man, like a lot of you look up at me when you don't get what you want. And he says, what a fool I am. I thought you were the wisest man in the world. I thought you were to give, give me all the great secrets that you have, that you were just going to give those to me. What is wrong? What is, you're nuts. What's wrong with you? And the old man just looked at him and he said this. Look, kid, when you want truth, when you want understanding and you want wisdom as much as you wanted air when you thought you were going to drown, then and only then will you find it. When you want that book more than anything else on this planet, when you want the Word of God in your life like the, like, the, like the next breath you need to take, when you want it that bad, if then and only then will you find it. And the greatest rejoicing around here of the scores of folks that you have invested your life in and changed their lives. Your investment in others, getting them into the book, and in time getting them to invest their lives in others. I'm telling you, to see what the Word of God has done in so many of your lives because you were just like you wanted it more than anything else on this planet. Then the third thing, it will be the third rejoicing. It will be me as your pastor, the one who has the watch care for your soul, Hebrews 3, 13, 7, and how I get to watch you grow. 
You know, my verse for ministry is found in 1 Thessalonians 2.8. I've never really told you this or really ever gave it to you. But I've watched you through all the years through this verse. And 1 Thessalonians 2.8 simply says this, and it's my life verse for you. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own selves, because you were dear to us. My giving of me and all that God has given to me to you to make you my investment. I, I know of no suitable or accurate word to describe the joy a pastor has toward his people who will simply catch his vision of what God wants to do and then invest their life in what he's invested his life in and be laborers together. Hey, I get it. Negative people, the complainers, the whiners will always be part of the ministry. It's just that simple. But when you come to this church, God will ask you simply three questions that you'll have to answer inside your own heart. One of them will be, well, do you see what he's trying to do? The second question will be, will you align yourself up to that to help him do it? And the third question, based on yes or no, is, is it about others or is it only about you? And simply the men and women who see God's heart and make their heart His heart to do the work of the ministry together, my fellow laborers. And our text says today, the father of the righteous shall greatly rejoice, and he that begotteth a wise child shall have joy of him. I want you to notice that verse. I want you to note that it didn't say would have joy in him, but rather joy of him. It's not rejoicing in the child himself, it's rejoicing in what that child does of him. In your own kids first, in your family, in your spiritual kids that you all invest your life with, and me as your pastor, and you being my kids. It goes on and says, The father and thy mother shall be glad, and she that bear thee shall rejoice. And I, and I can tell you, You know, you'll get some duds. You'll get people who start to be discipled and they'll get a better deal someplace else with some guy or some gal or whatever and they're gone. Or even if they stick it all the way through, you can tell they lose their punch very quickly. You're always going to have that. But the key is the ones that make it, that take the investment and do something with it, make everything else worthwhile. It's just that simple. You know, the absolute, complete blessing of investing your life into the lives of somebody else. You and me going home to be with the Lord, knowing that our work is carried on and the ministry that God began in us, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, goes on after we're gone. You know, the ministry is like prospecting for gold. You have to dig through a lot of dirt to find one good nugget. But when you do, all the digging through the dirt seems like it was worth it for the nuggets you found. 
And those old boys, you know, used to build their little running troughs and all that stuff, and they'd get mud in there, and then they'd shake it with the water. The dirt would fall around, and boy, there would be the scarfing nuggets of gold. You know, that's a lot what we do here with the Word of God, the water of the Word of God. We just wash by the washing of the water regeneration, and then no gold nuggets come to the surface. And yes, sometime you'll get a nugget that you'll think's a piece of gold, and then you take it to the assayer, and he'll test it and find out that it's not real gold, it's fool's gold. He has to put it to the test to find out if it's real or not. And in the ministry, God will put you to test to find out if you're real or not. That's okay. Your job and my job is to keep digging. Because the gold is always there. You just got to do the work to find it. Then that's your job and my job, digging through the dirt to find the nuggets. And I look at you here today who are part of this work, have my heart, know what I'm trying to do. You work with people, make my ministry work, make it so easy. And it all because you've learned how to prospect for gold. And you're the nuggets. You're the golden nuggets that are going to shine at the judgment seat of Christ. You and me going home to our reward, knowing that your ministry is going on through your family. And God has multiplied your investment in people a thousandfold. And even though you're, through your unselfish life has imparted the words uh, in an incredible way. That verse says that he hath begun a good work in you and shall perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. God taking the investment of your life, the final analysis, the final work that will go on after you're dead will carry on after you and I have gone home. And I think the most tragic thing in a Christian's life, certainly a mom and or a dad, will be passing off life and knowing that their walk with God and the work with God that was started in them stopped with you because you never imparted it onto your kids. Last week we talked about buying and paying the price for the Word of God and then giving it away freely. How it's the family first and then to others. And you taking what God has given you and realizing that the day you got saved, He began that work in you. And now you take that work, you invest in people's lives. And after you and I are gone, the work that God started in you continues through your family. It'll continue through your children, through the grandchildren, through the generation. What the Bible says in Psalm 127 is God's heritage. And all the way down through the rest of history, long after you're gone, what God started in you continues in the lives of somebody else because you were willing to make the investment right here. There's nothing special about you or me. We're all sinners. We all have our issues. But God is incredibly famous for taking ordinary men and women and then empowering them to do extraordinary things. And that's what he's done with you. And I rejoice today that I have you in my church. And I rejoice today that you have people in your life, that this church would never be where it is. It would never be as strong. There's some of you that for the last 10 or 12, 13, 14 years, all you've done is take new people and form them and forge them. And you talk about going over and above. You have done it. You've got to be rejoicing in that. That's got to be the greatest thing for you. 
when your world falls apart and you get diagnosed with cancer and you're laying in your deathbed, you know you all got to go home to the Lord sometime, where everybody else is lamenting over the things, you're just sitting there thinking, wow, wow. I know I'm going home, but I know my work's going to keep going on. That's the key. Dr. Ruckman, before he died, he wrote a book, which I think probably has nothing to do with theologically, but I think it's probably one of the greatest works he ever wrote. And it was kind of a semi about his life, and the name of it was The Full Cup. And that's the key. When you go home to be with the Lord, how full is your cup? His was filled to the brim. And that's really the key. That's really the key. And today, the work of God started in you. And failed pastoring has led to failed parenting, which has led to a failed Christianity. The work of God started in you and me the day God saved us. And it goes on to the day of Jesus Christ. Building a church, not worrying about a building. You build a church one family at a time. You build a church one person at a time. And that person becomes the single most important thing in your world at that point. That's the difference between a church that just is a church and one that does something with the Word of God. When you get somebody that you work with, they are the most important thing in your world. And you will go over and above and give them everything. That's what makes Christianity work. And that's what builds strong Christians. And that's why long after I'm gone, long after some of you are gone, if Jesus tarries his coming, the work will go on, not because of any greatness of any one person, simply because of the investment of many people. And there lies the key. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus, and we do love you so very, very much. Lord, I thank you for the men and the women in this church who are my fellow soldiers, my fellow laborers. Lord, I thank you, Father, for everything that you've given me and these great people that I certainly don't deserve. And I pray, Father, that you'll just take them and use them and continue to challenge them and to help them to do whatever they can do to help somebody get where they need to be. Lord, I know that we can't help everybody. And I know there are some people that we just want to stay away from and it's just a, it's just a dead-end street and it just is a no-win situation. But help us to work through all of that to find the gold and to work and to give them everything that they need. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name for a sake we ask it. Amen.